0: Thanks, Savaya. Good morning. Uh, welcome to church. Uh, I want to add my welcome to Andrew's. My name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. And what a great day to celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The fact that we can go, oh, this is amazing. Future is available, life forever. Why don't we pray as we come to this part of God's word that God would help us to understand it and its implications for the way we think about the world? Let's pray. Lord God, this morning as we come together, excited that Jesus really did rise from the dead, we're so thankful that you've spoken. We're so thankful that you've shown us that Jesus is a king like no other and ask that as we come to this part of your word that we've just heard read, that you would shape us to be more like your son, you'd help us to see what you see here, and you'd send us out amazed at who Jesus is and how we respond to him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, psychologists and business leaders tell us that one of the best predictors of success in life and in business and in financial stability is a person's ability to read the room, to understand what's going on in yourself, understand the situation that you're in, and to act appropriately. Uh, It's called emotional intelligence. And it actually seems that some of the seminal studies of emotional intelligence point to this being an incredible indicator for how successful you can be in life. One of the main studies that was done in, uh, in the world was actually done here in New Zealand, in Dunedin. They took 1,000 children who were born in Dunedin and followed their progress for 30 years and found out that there was one factor that predicted their financial success. It wasn't if they made it to Auckland or not. That was not it. It wasn't their IQ or the wealth of their family. It was what they called cognitive control. The ability to understand your own emotion and learn to respond to others well. It's the ability to read the room. Whether that be the room of your own life or the room that you're in in any situation in life, learning to read the room is vital for us all. Getting the room wrong can have all sorts of negative consequences. For me, there was a moment in the mid to late 1990s when I was a teenager, where my frontal lobe was not yet connected to the rest of my brain. And I did things that were dumb and stupid quite often. Every report card I'd ever gotten in school said if Rowan only thought before he spoke. And I'm like, you can do that? Like, how does that work? We'd been out with some friends. We went to this big youth event. There was over 3,000 youth at this event. Quick shout out to youth group. Great thing. Get along to that. Really helpful to see you grow and stand firm in Jesus. Went to this youth event. it must have been about 15 or 16. And on the way home, we're all excited and pumped up from this big event and excited to serve Jesus with our lives. We decided to stop at a McDonald's on the way home. But it wasn't in the best area of town. It was a bit shady. Uh, and the car park as we got there was kind of full, filled full of those cars that have kind of got the big wheels that move when they're not even moving. You know, and they're kind of shiny and they're lowered and they've got the doof-doof music and the cars move with the music. There were kind of all these cars and I'm like, look at all these punks. And like the young, arrogant teenager that I was, I kind of thought, I'm so much better than these people, look at them with their fancy cars, whatever. So we walked into this McDonald's, we, we ordered some food, uh, we sat down, and I thought it'd be a great moment uh, to sing the moose song. Now, if you've ever heard the moose song, it's just a great song. I've got no idea why I thought it was a good idea. Uh, but basically, go, you go, well, there once was a moose, and everyone says, well, there once was a moose. And then you go, who like to drink a lot of juice? who like to drink a lot of juice. And it's this call and response song that is, I don't know, stupid. I don't know what I was doing, and if I thought it would help me get to know some of the girls in youth group. I don't know why I thought that. Obviously my frontal lobe was not connected to the rest of my brain. But I thought it'd be a great place to sing that and try and see if I could get the whole of McDonald's to join me. And so I'm standing on a table singing the moose song, and it's actually working. Some people beyond our group are starting to copy that. When then I noticed that around the corner were a bunch of these people that drove these cars. Actually, they were a gang. It wasn't really the best place to do that. They started looking at me. The McDonald's manager came and removed me from the room and the restaurant, and I didn't do that again. (laughs) There are moments in life where we misread the room. And when we get to this part of human history in Mark 11, we have a moment in humanity, a moment in history where humanity failed to read the room. What we have in front of our eyes here is a king like no other. If we'd been there at this moment that Via just read for us, we would have seen a king who would change the course of human history. More than that, it would change eternity for those who recognized who he was. But the problem is, everyone misread the room. What we had here was an amazing moment to see what would change human history. But the problem was, we didn't see it. In fact, every account of the life of Jesus records this event. He's walking into Jerusalem. And they all record the responses people had to it. So John's gospel says that the disciples didn't understand what was going on. In other words, they misread the room. Matthew says in in 21.10 that the, the people were confused about who Jesus is and they were saying to one another, who is this? The crowds are saying, who is this one who is coming? And the question for all of us on this Easter Sunday is this. Is it possible you've misread the room of the life of Jesus? So far in the story of Mark, Jesus has done the miraculous. But every time when people recognize who he is, he tells them to be quiet. Don't say this to anyone else. The demons go, you are the son of God. He says, shh, don't tell people. He keeps doing this miraculous events, and he keeps his identity under wraps. Don't share it just yet. In the section before this, a blind man called Bartimaeus sees who Jesus really is. He calls out to him, son of David. In other words, promised king of God, Messiah. The blind man sees, and now we get to Mark 11, and Jesus stops hiding his identity. The world around starts to recognize him as someone, but Jesus doesn't hide it at all. At the moment, he tells the disciples to go and get a donkey. Now, it's an odd request, a bit random. I don't know if you've been, yep, just go grab me a donkey. There'll be a house somewhere. Just go grab it, ride it. We'll see why it's random and important in a moment. But listen to the request, Mark 11, verse 3. If anyone says to you, while you're doing this, getting the donkey, say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. Now, I grew up going to a Christian high school, and sometimes at a high school, we use this totally out of context. Uh, we would go up to something or someone and, uh, in a classroom and, and, and grab something, and the teacher's like, what are you doing? And we'd say, the Lord needs it, and then run out. Um, that's not what was going on. <laughs> Jesus here is pointing to his identity. We were not the Lord in high school, but he is. He said to them, tell them the Lord needs it. Not the Son of Man, like he'd been calling himself up until this point. The Lord. God. Now, for the disciples who'd recognized a little bit of who Jesus was, they're now told to tell the world, to say to this person, the Lord needs this. People on the outside get to hear, the Lord is here. They go, they they find this donkey, as it's, it's said, And the people just give them the donkey. The Lord needs it. So what is with the donkey? Why is it so important that all the gospel accounts record is he's coming in on a donkey? Well, Jesus is showing the world that the king has come, but that he's a king like no other. See, the prophet Zechariah, writing six centuries before this, would say these words in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he'll proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Jesus deliberately chooses a donkey to tell the rest of the world, I am this king who is coming. The king Zechariah foretold would come, a king like no other. But that's where we see the first point in our talk today that Jesus is the countercultural king. He's a countercultural king. Now, usually kings would come in and ride into town on a war horse, some massive horse with muscles so big it makes everyone go, whoa, that horse is big, right? That, that kind of picture with pomp and show and saying, look, I'm the king over this area. And you'd expect a great king that stretches from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth would be riding on such a steed, but not so here. Jesus comes in, in a kind of on, on a horse that's more appropriate for a child or a hobbit, right? It's a, it's a donkey. And in fact, it's a baby donkey. It's kind of comic. There's a king on it, on this tiny, his feet were probably dragging on the floor as it kind of went along. It's, it's little. I don't know how tall Jesus was. But this, this picture here is of a king like no other, a countercultural king. And it makes you ask, what sort of king is this? What sort of king is Jesus? Have I got my view of him right? Have I misread the room here or not? The people were expecting a king to lead them against what they thought was their biggest enemy, Rome. But Jesus comes, not to bring war against Rome, but peace. Not peace with the Romans, but peace with God, with the creator of the universe. In a way, Jesus is saying, I am the king, but not a king that fits into the world's categories. I bring together majesty and meekness, power and weakness. I'm different. We think kings should be above all and huge and strong, but not suffer, but not show weakness. The Jews wanted a king to bring judgment on the nations around them. What they actually needed was a king to bear the judgment of God on them. To end the hostility that mankind had created between God by rejecting him. That's what they needed. But at this point, the people praise him, thinking that he is the type of king they want. And so we read in verse 8 of chapter 11. Many people spread their clothes on the road and others spread leafy branches cut from fields. Those who went ahead and and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now at first glance, you kind of get here and you're like, it seems these guys have got something right. They think there's something special about Jesus. Here comes Jesus, cries out, Hosanna. That means God save us. They recognize the kingdom of their father, David, is coming with Jesus. They're like, you kind of think this is it. But they've misread the room. It's the wrong type of king that they're after. See, the irony is that the same people who cried Hosanna in the highest as he rode into Jerusalem that day just six days later would most probably have been in the crowd that called out, crucify him. Crucify him. If nothing else, friends, we need to see the fickleness of human celebrity. Celebrity thinking that because everyone's excited about someone at this moment, they will not just drop you at the next or drop him at the next. We do need to realize and recognize Jesus is a king like no other. So often we come to God looking for solutions to our own problems, the things that we think are big in our life. We want him to fight what our, what our biggest problems seem to be, whether that be making life better or getting rid of debt, removing suffering, bringing comfort. They're the big things in our life and so many people flock to God in those moments. Apparently church attendance after September 11 in the US went through the roof. Everyone came along but once it settled down, oh we don't need it anymore. We don't need God anymore. I'm right, I've got this sorted. So often we come to God seeking our own solutions, our own view of what we need. What we kind of we sing to God, you're great God, you're amazing, but we view him like a genie in a bottle, where he'll, he'll give us our solutions, or a vending machine of comfort, give me what I need. Across the globe today, people gather, we, we give and receive Easter eggs, we, we go to church and we sing the praises of Jesus. But for so many, it's a different Jesus. It might be a Jesus who was influential in human history, a Jesus who some think, oh, is important in some way. Maybe a moral leader, maybe someone to help them in times of trouble. It's good to go along and and just enjoy a bit of culture, to think about him as an important figure. But so easily we can miss who he really is. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem in that comic picture of a king on a donkey, he shows us he's a king like no other. He also shows us that there's only two right responses to him, well, two logical responses to him. You either crown him as king or you kill him. In six days' time, they would find out which it would be. You either recognize who he is or you execute his influence from your life. The one thing you cannot do with this king is say, oh, he's just an interesting guy. The the reaction he had in the first century was either that he is a king like no other or he is crazy. He should be left to die. He comes as a countercultural king, not to bring judgment on the nations around like the Jews wanted, not yet, but to experience judgment for the nations, to experience the judgment that you and I deserve, for turning our backs on God. As we read on, we see that the crowd doesn't last long at all. The next day, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, there's no crowd to be found, no one laying down palm branches, no one saying, "Wow, Jesus, Hosanna, He's come to save. They're all gone." Those that crowned him king after their own heart's desires are about to have their own heart's desires confronted by the true king. And that's where we see the second part of who this king is. He is the confrontational king. The confrontational king. Look at verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, it's, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it into a den of thieves. Now, at first glance, you hear this and you're like, okay, maybe he has lost the plot. Like, what is going on here? Why is he not like doves? Is there something he's like, guys can't handle doves? Like, I hate pigeons. Like, Why do they make that noise? Like, oh, like, what is that? <laughs> what is, is it just Jesus can't handle doves? Or, or money changes. He's like, you guys, you're kind of like the tax collector. I don't want anything to do with you. You're kind of shonky people. Is it that there's something going on that's just the the buyers and sellers doing it? What is going on? You could think here that Jesus has lost the plot. Going into the temple complex, the place that he's walking into, is literally into the temple that God had set up for his people. It was the heart of Israel's worship of God and the right relationship they had within. And Jesus goes into the heart of where people approached God and turns on Wreck-It Ralph mode. He's like, off he goes, pulls them over, throwing out those that are buying and selling. Why is that? We've got to understand what the temple was. Every country, every culture in the world at that time had temples. Why? Because every culture and every society believed two things. One, a temple means that there is a God, a divine person. There's something out there behind nature that we need to be in touch with. And temple was the place that you would go to kind of get in touch with that God. But the second thing that it meant was that you just can't talk to the divine. You just can't walk around and speak to him or her or whatever they think it is. You can't say, hey, ultimate being, just want to chat. Now, we think that today because we've got this ability to pray to God without any of these things called a temple. But then you had to go to this place to be able to speak to God or to the deities that existed. There was a gap between humanity and the deities that needed to be mediated, a chasm that needed to be bridged. And for the Jews, the temple was the place that God set up where they could meet with the true and living God. Not just one of many. But you could come and bring sacrifices to him, recognizing that you turn your backs on God and that blood must be spilt for what you'd done and the animal would die in your place so you didn't have to. If you've rejected the life-giving God, then you should die. But if the animal dies for you, that is acceptable to God. And that was why people would come and bring their offerings to God to show that they were in debt to him. And where Jesus is, where these money changes are going on, is in the outer courts, which is this huge area, massive, where the non-Jews could come to. It was supposed to be a place where those who weren't Jews could come and, and approach God. They couldn't get into the, the, the next circle in, or the one bef- in even further, or into the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt um, physically earlier on, and then symbolically later on. So here they were in the place where the nations could come a- a- and approach God but the Jews had turned this kind of court into like a, a money making venture where they were kind of exchanging money and, and buying and selling lambs because you had to be able to have a sacrifice to come. The historian Josephus tells us that in one Passover week, which this was, 25,000 lambs were bought and sold and sacrificed in the temple courts. Just think of that 25,000. I don't know how many sheep fit in one of those big semi-trailer things. I didn't get to do the research on that, but if you know, tell me later. That's a lot of sheep. 25,000 in one week. So you can imagine what it's like, bustling with people, buying, selling, exchanging the money that's there. And what's happened here is, rather than people recognizing that they need to repent, to turn back to God, that the blood must be spilt because of their sin, it's just turned into like a, a marketplace, And those that weren't Jews couldn't come and speak to God because the Jews had taken it over and they were there. And so the nations couldn't hear about God. And so Jesus walks in and condemns it. It looked on the outside like they were doing a good thing where we're we're buying and selling the sacrifices that we need to come to God the right way. We're providing a way of worship to God. But on the inside, it was as hollow as an Easter egg. It was hollow religiosity. All pretense. It's one of the things I hate about Easter eggs. You go and take a bite of it, and you're like, this is this great egg, and you bite it, and there's just air inside. Where did that air come from? Was it good air? Am I eating air from some... Where is this? I don't know where it is. And what's happening here? And it's just hollow on the inside. I've got no idea about what it is. So this was Israel. They looked all nice and clear and foily on the outside, but when you got in... It was pretense. It was hollow. They were using God for their own gain, helping, getting God to help them with their problems and making them look good to everyone around them. And notice, it wasn't just the sellers that were booted out. It was the buyers as well. The whole idea of approaching God, recognizing that because of our rebellion, blood must be spilt, was turned into a business. It was, it was merely external. No desire to know God. No desire for the nation's to come to God. And this King, Jesus, who came not to confront the nations like the Jews wanted him to do, steps into the temple to the heart of people's worship of God and confronts their hollow religiosity. That's why Jesus uses this weird fig tree illustration. Like, what's with the fig tree? What happened there? He puts it before and after, or well, Mark does in this, in this narrative, before and after the, the temple. Have a look at verse 12 of chapter 11. The next day, this is before um, they went into the temple, when they went out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Again, there's this confusing bit. What is going on with Jesus? I mean, it sounds a bit harsh. What did the fig tree ever do to you? Has anyone ever been attacked by a fig tree? Is there anything negative the fig tree has done to people? Did a fig fall on his head one day when he was a child and now he's wanting to come back and take it out on the fig tree? No, Jesus is using this as an illustration of the state of God's people. See, Fig trees grow green leaves when the figs come. If the tree has got leaves on it, you assume it's got figs. And Jesus sees this tree from a distance looking green and bushy with leafiness all over it. From a distance, it looks like it's a fruitful tree, like it's producing good fruit. Even if it is out of season, it looks as though it's got fruit on it because it's got the leaves. And as Jesus approaches, he sees that there's no fruit. It's fruitless. All talk, all show. It's an illustration of the religiosity that Israel has taken up, of what Israel has become, fruitless. The fig tree is like the bustling temple courts during Passover. It was putting on a good show, and that made it all the worse. It looked good on the outside. It's one thing to lack fruit out of season, but it's another thing to lack fruit while you're pretending to have it, by having fig leaves on It's this massive warning for Israel, but it's more than a warning. It's a condemnation. You've totally misread the room, Israel. You've totally misread God and what this is about. You're just living in this religiosity, going through the motions, not thinking about how you relate to God. And how often do we do that? Just go through the motions of life, not thinking about the God who made us and my relationship with him. We can come along to church. We can can do these things, and we forget about actually what God has done. God is not into outward appearance, looking like you're doing the right thing, sacrificing the right animals when, when our hearts are far from Him. He's not about us thinking Jesus is an important person, you know, living as good people, pretending that our hearts are close to Him, but actually far from Him. He's not about us coming to church to fulfill our duty or to get our top up of spirituality for the year or to look like, yes, I'm a Christian. Do you ever feel the temptation to make your personal life look like it's in leaf, to make it look good, but actually there's not much fruit? Do you ever feel the temptation to keep doing the right things? You might be trying to be the super mom or the super dad, getting life sorted, the super employee, uh, the super cultural representation of the people group that you come from, trying to do the right things on the outside and come across the right way, but you never actually produce any fruit toward God. God's word does not change you. You're not living for the king. I, at times, am not living for the king. Are you letting God shape you and mold you? Are you growing in your intimacy with him, letting his word change the way you think about the world and comfort you and challenge you? Are you ever brought to tears and convicted by your sin and by the brokenness that we have? Are you convicted of your judgmentalism or your self-centeredness or or, or all the different ways we say, no, I think I'm going to put myself at the center. Does that ever happen for you? Or are you a fruitless leafy tree? Our churches can be just as bad, can't they? We might look like we're impressive on the outside and booming attendance, have a building program. We might have clever design in the things that we do, impressive music. But if Jesus were to turn up to the temple of our life and our church, what would he find? Would he find fruit or just leaves on the outside, pretending everything's good, not really interacting with the king like no other? The next day after the temple debacle, they walk out of Jerusalem. And Mark tells us in verse 20, early in the morning, As they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. He's surprised, Peter, always putting his foot in it. Why does Jesus tell us, or Mark tell us, that the fig tree withered from the roots up? We could have just said it withered, it died. Fig tree, what you said happened. But no, he tells us it withered from the roots up. I'll tell you why. Because if you misread the room and you miss out on who Jesus is and what he's done, you miss the root of life. And while you might have leaves on the outside for a while, if you've not recognized who this king is, your roots are gone and your future is destruction and death. Israel had misread the room. They'd made the worship of God into hollow religiosity. Here, Jesus confronts us all. He confronts our hollow religiosity, our going through the motion, our misreading the room of who Jesus is. He confronts the whole idea of the temple as well. See, this temple, this place that they were to meet with God, was was transitory. Even though it was the center of the way that the Old Testament people met with God, it was just another illustration of a truer and greater meeting place, of a truer and greater king where people could meet God face to face. And that king had just walked into Jerusalem and found it hollow. The place we can meet with God, the replacement of the temple, the fulfillment of the temple is the person of Jesus. He condemns the fig tree for its fruitlessness. He condemns the temple. He confronts it. It will fail. Its time is over. Its fruitlessness has now been showed up and God's done with it. Because God has sent his son, just like he said he would. Look at what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 8, 13. I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaf will wither. Whatever I have given them will be lost to them. Jeremiah had said, if you keep rejecting me, then it will be gone. And here Jesus comes in and saying, you can't do it. Too long. It's over. God had promised that continually rejecting him would bring their destruction. You know, at the end of the same account in Luke's gospel, Luke records Jesus' reaction to the events that took place right here as he walked into Jerusalem with a fig tree and the whole event of what happened in the temple complex. Listen to what Luke records Jesus says. Luke 19, 41. As Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept for it saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Jesus rocks up and says, have you seen who I am? Have you misread the room? Have you misread that God has turned up? That he himself was God coming in the person of Jesus as a king like no other. And he was coming to deal with people's rebellion, to provide a better way to God, better access to God than the temple, where he would die in our place and rise again. He was coming as the king like no other. you've got to ask, why do we look at this passage on Easter Sunday? Why on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, do we think about Jesus descending to Jerusalem and, and coming in and cleansing the temple and confronting people? Well, we do that because it's actually about the resurrection of Jesus. The last point we see here is the conquering king. The conquering king. The resurrection here shows the true identity of Jesus. Today, as we stand back and see that this Jesus who came and died and then rose again was who he claimed to be. While people misread the room then, you can't misread the room now. Not if you look at the evidence. In John 12, on John's recollection of the whole events that happened in exactly this point, listen to what he says. John 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. He's talking about clearing the temple and Jesus coming in, Right? However, when Jesus was glorified, in other words, raised from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and they had done these things to him. See, everyone misread the room until Jesus rose from the dead and the resurrection of the Jesus was the penny that dropped. He is the king. We've we've not understood him properly. He's not come to wipe out the other nations, but to die in our place and to offer us life that does not end, life that lasts forever. The resurrection is the key to working out who this king like no other is. At his trial, as Jesus is about to go to his death, Matthew records that the claim that put him to death was Jesus' claim to destroy the temple, to say that this is gone, there is now a better way. Have a look, Matthew 26 verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they couldn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two who came forward stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. See, are you this king? Tell us who you are. You'll wipe out the temple and raise it in three days. Don't yet quite understand what that is. What does Jesus reply? You've said it. But I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The resurrection of Jesus, Jesus rising from the dead on the third day, shows who he is, the promised King. It gets it right. The temple he was speaking of was his body. That's the place we can meet with God. As he died, the temple curtain ripped in two and then that rises again. You come to Jesus, you meet God. The resurrection shows us that. That humble king riding on a donkey, coming to die for us, coming to be judged in our place, coming to show the hollowness of fruitless religiosity, the hollowness of the temple and the hollowness of our whole lives. That king who came and died three days later rose to show he's the creator of the universe and the king over all. That's why we celebrate Easter. The resurrection of Jesus shows us who he really is, the place we meet with God, the true sacrifice, the way the nations can come to God. All people now can come because Jesus died in our place. He is the true Jew, the one who did perfectly what we could not do the fulfillment of what the temple was supposed to do, and a king like no other. The irony is, all the people worshipped him as a king after their own heart's desires. While Jesus was foreshadowing what his resurrection would bring in, they were bowing down before him on that road, worshipping him, thinking he was going to be their king. But do you know what was actually happening Jesus was showing what was about to happen. In Psalm 96, it says that the trees of the wood will sing for joy before the Lord when he comes to rule the earth. And what happened? They bowed down with palm branches as a symbol of his resurrected king. Isaiah 55 said, the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Here was an enacted moment as Jesus walked into Jerusalem to show that he is the replacement of it all and the solution that we need and the king like no other. He gave a hint of what his resurrection will bring. A day when the mountains themselves will sing for joy. Imagine that. When Jesus returns and things are put right because of his resurrection, there's no more mourning or crying or, or pain or, or sin. It says the trees themselves will stand and sing for joy before the Lord on that day. As Jesus walked into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday, as the people misread the room, they gave the world a foretaste of the kingdom the resurrection brought. A world where every knee would bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the resurrection of Jesus begins that trajectory where the the ground gave up its dead and Jesus was was shown to be king. This next little bit in the passage, you see the disciples talking about faith and having enough faith. At that moment, before they've seen the resurrection, they don't know if Jesus is who he says he is. But they will see mountains moved, as Jesus dies and rises again, and the resurrection shows that he is worthy to be trusted. The question for us all on this Easter Sunday is, have you misread the room? How have you misread the room? Have you misread who Jesus is? Have you misread what it means to follow him, in, perhaps in outward appearance or godly fruitlessness? Have you misread the resurrection by thinking it didn't happen? It didn't mean anything. Jesus is just some kind of interesting guy from history. Or have you seen Jesus as the king like no other, who would come and die in our place and replace the whole way we can approach God? Resurrection means we can see Jesus for who he really is. So this Easter, make sure you read the room rightly. Make sure you recognize that Jesus is a king like no other. Make sure he is your king. Let's pray together and ask God to help us to put Jesus as our king. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for showing us through your word and by your spirit the true identity of Jesus. We admit that so often we think that you exist for us rather than us for you. We reframe uh, what we, we think we ought to do and we take different ideas or promises and we don't come and, and see you as you really are, the one who's sent your son to die in our place, to deal with the relationship between us and you. We forget the importance of the resurrection. We slide into fruitless Christianity or fruitless living without letting you shape and mold our lives. Lord, we are sorry. Please help us this Easter Sunday, to recognize who Jesus is because of the resurrection. That in Christ alone, our hope is found. That there is only one way to Jesus, to, to you, and that is through Jesus. Please help us to read the room rightly and live for you. Mold us, shape us, change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.